ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Such powerful stuff that we're going to talk about today. You know, we're living in a really, really, really crazy time in our country. Some of you remember the days of Richard Nixon and Watergate. And it just seems like that just pales now in comparison to all the scandals that seem to come out of the Oval Office. You know, former President Trump, and he's got the conspiracy indictments and classified documents. In fact, that one's going to be right here in Fort Pierce. And then you got the sitting president and, and all the stuff that's coming out about these bribery schemes and so forth. And right now, all these things are allegations. But the American people were just like, oh, we're just tired of this. Of course, depending on which side you're on, you may be pointing at the other. But probably a lot of us are just like, please, whoever goes in there, just, just you know, behave yourself or whatever. And we say, indict them, impeach them, lock them up, right? Well, here's the thing. I'm not here to weigh in on what I think about that. I'm not here to tell you about what I think they should do and all the problems and what, how I think uh, what is going on. Because if you read Romans chapters 1 through 3, you realize something. We've got our own problems. We've got our own problems. We've been indicted for our sinfulness, and there's a judgment day that's coming, and there is wrath of God that's going to come upon all who have sinned. And we read those first three chapters, and we're just like, oh, man. And then suddenly, where we're going to be dealing with our text this morning, we read this. He says in Romans 3, 24, 21, but now, but now. That can be negative, right? You hear sometimes, you know, my life was going so good, but now everything's falling apart. We, we, though, can use it as a positive, and that's what Paul does here. He says, all this stuff I've been telling you about, you're a sinner, yet there's God's wrath has got to be dealt with because of his righteousness, and there's judgment coming. He says, but now there's good news. In fact, let's just get into the text, and let's read, starting in verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, which Peyton dealt with last week, through faith in Jesus Christ, is for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is a divisive shift that happens in salvation history. The righteousness of God comes and it's revealed in Jesus Christ. Paul said that these law and the prophets, that they... They spoke about this day that's going to come. Because it had to happen because Israel failed to be a light to the nations. 
But thank God, the faithful Israelite, Jesus Messiah, came into our world to make sure God's mission would be accomplished. To make sure the promise that he had made to Abraham, and we're going to talk about Abraham next week, that this would be fulfilled, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. But now is not a new religion. But now is not a new moral code. But now is an event that changed the world forever. And it's here in our text that we find our word for the day. Because when we say, when in Romans, remember these, these words that we're going through in this series. And here's the word, justify. Or you might say justification. You read that one in there as well. I remember when I was younger... I was told, this is a good way to remember justify or justified. It's justified, never sinned. Okay, that's nice, and it's, there's a part of that, but it's a much deeper word. In fact, this language comes from the law court. And if you read it biblically as the way it's to be written and understood, it means to acquit or acquittal. And it is the reversal of condemnation. Now, I'm going to get a couple of people up here. Come on up, Aaron. Um, Evelyn, you want to come help me? Come on, Evelyn. Okay. I'm gonna, here, I'll put you over here. Okay, I needed. Okay, just stand there. Hold this sign. You're the guilty. Doesn't he look guilty? <laughs> come on up. She's going to hold my sign for innocent. Because it's very important when we understand what this word justification means. Because justification, it means something different than justice. It sounds a lot alike. But justice is what declares us guilty. Okay? That's what declares us guilty. Because it's a part of God's character. And sin is a crime against God, a holy God. It is deserving, Aaron, guilty is deserving of punishment and death and separation. But we're not going to do that to you. But justification pronounces innocent. So imagine there's a judge... You know, and, and here at the end of the trial, maybe Joe Wilde, I don't know if he ever pronounced anyone not guilty, but let's just say he did. <laughs> but we would say, oh, he's been declared innocent, right? The justification of God is similar to that, but it's not the same, because here's the thing. It's not because we're not guilty, because we are. It's not that we've been declared innocent because there, wasn't, there was a lack of evidence. Because there's plenty of evidence in our lives to show that we are sinners. That we are guilty. And yet, in the very next chapter, it says God justifies the ungodly. Now, how does that sit with you? Some of you are probably thinking, well, I think that's great because you're in a church setting and you know this is having to do with us. 
But when's the last time you watched a case or followed a case and you're like, oh, they are, they are guilty, there's evidence, I know it is, and then they were acquitted. Or let's just say they weren't, but, the, but, but well, their punishment was like nothing, like a little slap on the hand. And you get angry about that. And so it's almost like, is it right for God to justify the ungodly? Doesn't that bring about his injustice? There's something here, folks, about this word that is so powerful. It goes against the wisdom of God back in Proverbs, where he tells us, listen, you who justifies the wicked, that's an abomination to me. In Exodus, it just says, God says, I will not acquit the wicked. And it's like, what happened? What happened? Drop yours. Because if you're innocent, you're righteous, drop yours. You're guilty. You're a sinner. We've got that figured out by now. So it's like, what happened in all of this? How is it that God could justify the ungodly and him being holy? Here it is. Christ was punished for our sin. God does not overlook sin. He does not endorse it. He does not encourage it in any way. He punishes it. Sin has to be punished. The, proverb, uh, the, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the suffering servant that was coming. And listen to what he says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we, we like sheep, we've all gone astray. We have turned, every single one of us, to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then it goes on in verse 11. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Take that word satisfied. Put it in the back of your head. We're going to pull it forward in a minute. It says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Here's what happens. Okay, you two, come in here. What happens is the suffering servant, he takes our sins. Go ahead, take it. I'm going to let you be Jesus right now. And gives us his righteousness. Just put that down. This is how that works. Y'all can go sit down now. Thank y'all. He takes our punishment for us. You look back at chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. Our justification, he says, is, is a result of God putting Jesus forward publicly as a propitiation. Now, there's a fun word. Right? Those of you who've grown up going to church your whole life, you're like, you know what? I've heard this word before. I know I have. But every time I hear it, I have to do a Google search. Because we just don't use this word very often. But it is a very, very powerful word. Are you, are you innocent or are you righteous? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> so here it is. He says uh, this propitiation. It's a fun word. And when you translate it from its Hebrew into its Greek, it means atonement cover or mercy seat. 
it may be better for you to understand it as the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Ah, now some of you, you're like, I've never been to church my whole life, but I know the Ark of the Covenant because I've seen Indiana Jones. <laughs> right? And the rest of you are like, oh yeah, I've seen this picture before. It's the lid. It's the mercy seat where God comes down and he would meet with Israel. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, there would be a sacrifice that would be made, and the blood of that sacrifice would be sprinkled onto the mercy seat as a sin offering for the people. And that word atonement, that's a fun word too. There's a lot of fun words in here, and it is so special because it, is, it means that we have been reconciled. Sinful humanity has been reconciled to a holy God. But this really doesn't dive into the word as, as Paul is trying to share with us about Jesus. Because this word means the appeasement of the wrath of God. The appeasement of the wrath of God. Jesus was made our propitiation for us. Now, look, you may be thinking, well, why did we need Jesus? I mean, we had a pretty good system going on. Why not just continue to, to kill, you know, an animal once a year and have that blood sprinkled on the mercy seat? It's almost like people today, and it's like, well, there's this national deficit, but I guess we can just keep printing money, right? <laughs> and it's kind of the same thing, because guess what? It still has not, it has not, our sins have not been punished once and for all, or their sins were not punished once and for all. They were simply passed over. That's even what Paul says there in our text. But Christ died once and for all, he finally nailed our sins to the cross, and symbolically, symbolically, his blood has now been sprinkled onto the mercy seat of God in order to give us propitiation because it's finally been punished. God's wrath has finally been satisfied. Now, pull that word. It's finally been satisfied. The only way, listen, the only way God could remain righteous and for him to declare us righteous was for him to come in the flesh and to live a holy life and to die for us. Listen, I can't die for you. You can't die for me. If you've got two people on death row, one of them can't say, well, you know what, warden, I... I'm going to die for him. That way he can be freed up. I'll take his punishment. And be like, no, you've got your own death you've got to serve. That's not how it works. We had to have Jesus. And those who respond in faith, and we're going to talk about that next week. Those who respond in faith, they are justified and they are counted as righteousness. Here's what he says in chapter 5. He says, since therefore we have been justified by what? His blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. There's that reconcile. By the death of his son. Much more. Now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? Now I'm going to say something that it makes us uncomfortable. But I'm going to say it. In justification, God accepts us exactly the way we are. He doesn't change us in justification. 
Now, you may be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, if we're accepted, then why should we even try to live a holy life? That's an age-old question. (laughs) Paul was dealing with it back in his day. All you got to do is read Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, no, no. He, He expects change. He gives us his Holy Spirit in Romans 8 in order to begin to transform us. And it's a lifelong journey, folks. It's a lifelong journey as he continues to transform us. But first, he accepts us exactly the way we come to him. Listen, I guarantee we've got people in here that struggle with this. Wondering if you're worthy enough. You know, and it's not a matter of you're just living a life of sin and you could care less. I'm talking about you're, you're trying to live the best you can and you realize, you know what, you still fail at times. And, and you're just wondering, am I doing enough? Am I living, am I living a life that's, that's close enough to God that he's going to save me? I've known people who have put off baptism for years for years because they believed they needed their life to be perfect before they could come to Christ and for him to accept him. But I'm going to tell you something. It's kind of good news, bad news, but here it is. You will never be worthy. Not even on your best day. You'll never be worthy enough. There is simply nothing we can do to gain God's favor. We will never be righteous enough for long enough to meet God's holy requirements. We will never be pure enough. We will never, our choices and our actions will never be God honoring enough because the bar is too high. We can't reach it. But that's why it's called good news. I see people and they are just wallowing in their guilt and they're trying to live a good life, but they just feel this guilt and they're so unhappy, depressed. Does that sound like good news or bad news? No, this is good news, folks. And it's for that reason all boasting is prohibited. Look, let's go back into the text. Let's let's start in verse 27. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of laws by a law of works no but by the law of faith for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law any of you feel like your life is so holy and so pure the way you live it that it's okay for you to boast in that Jerry, you, you feel like you can boast? Hey, Joe, right behind, he's an elder. You feel like you can boast? What about you, Mike? Can you boast in your life and, and, and feeling like you, you meet all God's requirements the way you... None of us. Now, here's the interesting thing. He's actually talking to the Jews. You've got to stay in context here. He's talking to them because they sometimes felt... Well, and they did. They had a status over what we call Gentiles, non-Jews, which is pretty much most of us in here. 
And so they would boast in their, uh, in their ethnic uh, upbringing, right? They, they boasted in the fact that they had the law of Moses. They boasted in the works that they did according to the law because it, it set them apart from, from the pagans. And then, and, and in fact, that's why there's this, this quick shift here in verse 29. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The point he's making is, listen, if there is one God, and the Jews understood this, this is the Shema. If there's one God, there must be one people of God, but they must be justified, all of them together, by something other than the Jewish law. And it's by this thing we're going to talk about next week. It's what justifies all of us. Paul, Paul follows up the question. And he says, listen, boasting is excluded. You wouldn't think it, but that's a pretty awesome word. Excluded is a word It means to shut something out or someone out. It is the idea slamming a door shut, keeping out from entrance. No one, no one has the right to say that I have more status than someone else who has faith in Christ. We all need saving. Let me say that again. We all need saving. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. There is no exceptions. And it's kind of humbling, isn't it? But it's also, it's only in this time can we learn that we, we accept ourselves as who we are and what we are incapable of. And it's when we do that, we begin to see that this salvation that we have in Christ, it is a gift. It's a gift. Our obedience, folks, listen, our obedience isn't so that we will gain favor with God because it's impossible. Our obedience, our obedience comes out of a heart of thanksgiving and gratefulness for a God who saw us as we were and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I'm here to tell you, the Jews, they're not the only ones who've been guilty of believing their status and favor is greater than others and other groups. Let's read your church history. I know, it's boring. But church history tells us a lot. All you do, read about the church history in America. America's this new nation. All of a sudden, here they come. We're going to establish the millennial kingdom because we're going to get it all perfect. 
Here comes the Puritans. Here comes the new Puritans. And they come over, and, and they continue to splinter. Because, and all of them said the same two things. And this surprises people. This is, they all said the same thing. We are, it, the Bible is our only source, and we are going to restore New Testament Christianity. That's what they all said. And what would happen is they get in here, and then they have some disagreements on some things. And so this group would leave, and they would start theirs and say, we can't fellowship with them because they don't have perfect doctrine. We've got perfect doctrine. Eventually, somebody else leaves them. They start their own church and says, they don't have perfect doctrine. We've got perfect doctrine. The, the founder of Rhode Island, he, he started the Baptist church. He says, listen, I think people need to be immersed. I think that's what the Bible teaches. After a year, he left that church. Because he said, we'll never get it right. The restoration movement, that's what we came out of, folks. In the restoration movement, our whole goal was about uniting all the churches. It was about, look, I know we've got our differences over here and over here, but look, we can all be brothers and sisters in Christ. It didn't go so well. They were not trying to establish uh, their own church. But that's what they did, because they said, okay, we got to show them how this thing works. And it didn't work. And then decades down, and you read your church history, we became, many became, just like the ones before, and believed that we were the only ones who had favor with God. There's going to be doctrinal differences. There just are. If you look at our founding fathers of the Restoration Movement, Stone and Campbell, they had some very, very serious doctrinal differences. And, and it doesn't mean we don't stick to our convictions. We do. We do. But we also remember that there are brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the body by faith, not perfect doctrine. Not perfect holiness. Faith. We all need to be rescued. I don't know. Are you, are you tired if, if you're this way? Are you tired of trying to live your life and gaining God's favor somehow? And, and you're always wondering, have I done enough? I'm not talking about you, you just you don't care about how you live your life. I'm just talking about you just constantly living this way. Are you tired of that? You trying to, are you tired of trying to get to heaven of your own good works? It's wearing. And here's the thing. You'll never do it. Justification. Justify. When in Romans... Soak up that word. Meditate on that word. Live that word. You may be somebody that you're like, you know what, I don't even know what all this is about, but I want it. I want to talk to you later. Come to me. Come to, come to somebody. If you may know them, just say, I want that. I want that. We just want to sit down with you. And we want to tell you all about that. Because that's the event that changed the history of the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day. We thank you for your holiness. 
We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you this day and we sing out and we bring our hearts before you. And I pray, Father, that, that we just gave it the best that we could. But, Father, I know it's still not enough. And I know we'll never be able to thank you enough. But, Father, we are just so amazed by your grace. Father, I just pray that it lives in us and it just we continue to bring it out into our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.